Amen. You guys can go ahead and turn, if you have your Bibles, to Genesis chapter 6. Let me go ahead and tell you now that we finally have Bibles with Old Testaments in them. And they are, uh, they are at the end of each row on the center. So if you don't have a Bible, if you haven't brought one with you or, or don't have one, flag somebody down on the center. They'd be happy to pass one your way. And if you don't own a copy of the Bible, we'd love for you to take that with you. Keep it. Uh, and, and then we'd love the chance to talk with you about any questions you might have about what you read there. Today we're in Genesis chapter 6, continuing our, our big picture overview series on the beginnings of the world and God's relationship to his people. And I recognize, it's not lost on me, that I'm preaching a sermon on Noah and the flood on the anniversary, almost to the day, of the great Nashville flood of 2010. Uh, who among us could forget the images that we saw that day and in the days after? The, the, the waters carrying entire buildings down interstates. The waters, uh, the, the, the wake of those waters, seeing, driving through those neighborhoods in Bellevue, seeing houses completely gutted and just junk piled up on every yard. I promise I'm not preaching on the flood intentionally because of that anniversary. Uh, but it has gotten me thinking about images of floods that are really prominent in my mind. And, and, and one of them, I think probably for all of us, when we think of floods... What we think of is what happened in New Orleans in 2005 after Hurricane Katrina came through. You remember the vivid images of suffering that were on every TV screen and on the front of every magazine and newspaper for so long. The idea of, of buildings and property, entire neighborhoods wiped out. Images like people scrambling to the top of anything that they could climb, trying to escape the, the rising water, trying to imagine what it would have been like from their perspective to see that water keep creeping up as they scrambled higher and higher. Images of dead bodies floating down streets. These gruesome images remind us that floods are chaotic. They're ruthless. They have an irresistible power to them. For all the good work that Christians did in the days after Katrina to help clean up and rebuild and heal, it, it seems to me, thinking back on that experience, that those who got the biggest headlines, the ones that were most often in the news, were those who claimed that they were certain that God had sent this flood to wipe out the city of New Orleans, to judge them and to judge America for its sins. You can fill in the blank in any number of ways about what sin it was that brought that flood. Some people mentioned homosexuality and, and the issue of gay marriage. Some people issue, uh, mentioned um, abortion. Some people uh, mentioned, oh, the list went on. It was all the classic sins. And I imagine that most of us sitting here today, when we heard those things, read those headlines, we thought they were crazy. I think rightly so. These people were roundly criticized for making these bold judgments about, about knowing somehow the mind of God and what he was doing in history, as if they could be sure. I think those folks were rightly criticized. The problem is that in our text today, we come to Genesis 6 through 9, in a book that we as Christians believe to be the word of God, something that does speak his mind, something that, that does have an insider's perspective on what he's doing because it comes from him and he chose even the words that are used, we're confronted with a flood that was sent for judgment. 
We tend to think that those preachers who claim that about New Orleans were crazy, and, and rightly so. What do we do with a story in which God himself admits and intentionally designs a devastating flood to wipe out everything that is, save one family and some animals? It's a, it's a fingernails on a chalkboard kind of story when we read it that way, for us, with our modern sensibilities. There's no way to stay true, though, to the text as it's written, to avoid both the dull familiarity of you know, children's literature and decorations and the instinct to soften this thing and come away with, uh, without our sensibilities offended. We, 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 we have to confront it as it is. This isn't how most of us here typically view God. Those of us who were probably offended by the way that people, these, these, these crackpots responded to Hurricane Katrina have to confront the fact that our view of God has to take into account this flood as, as a judgment. What we've got to grapple with, in other words, today is God is a God of judgment. But there's another layer. There's another layer here. One that has huge implications that, that affect each of us even today. In, in his deliverance of Noah... God shows himself to be a God of grace. So this story, like all stories in Genesis, especially in this first section of Genesis, the first 11 chapters, it's here to explain major experiences and patterns that affect the rest of the Bible and the rest of human history. It's to show them the the origins of them and what they're like. And the pattern that we see here in the story of Noah is God acting as a God of cataclysmic judgment against sin. And on the other hand, acting as a God who delivers even sinners, a God of grace. Now, what I want to do is, is first give you a brief overview of the story. It's, it's too long to read it in full, so I'm not going to ask you today to stand up and read all three of these chapters. But I want to give you a sense of the, of the basic storyline, just to refresh our minds. Then I want to drill down on these two key themes and see how they relate to each other. That God is a God who hates sin but also loves to act in grace. That's where we're headed this morning. So the story. The story opens at the dawn of a new era in this larger story that Genesis is telling. Genesis is telling a story about the history of the whole world. What we've seen so far is God create everything that is and create it good. We understood that goodness to, be a, to exist because it's a reflection of who God is. It tells us something about what he's like. It shows us the wisdom and beauty and love of the creator who made all things that are. Then we saw that something went terribly, terribly wrong. That his creatures, in fact his highest creature, those made in his own image to reflect, and, to reflect him most clearly and to, and to act most fully on his behalf, decided not to be content with that subordinate relationship, but wanted to replace God with themselves. That's what happened in Genesis chapter 3, and it's started to change everything. The next chapters start to show it work itself into human history. So it initially just begins with, with Adam and Eve getting banished from the garden, but then the next thing you know, their son is killing his younger brother. Then if you forward through the rest of the chapter, by the end of chapter 4... One of their, another of their descendants is bragging about killing someone. It's not just that he did it. It's he, he's bragging about it, and he's bragging that he did it only because that guy hit him. He gets a slap across the face, and he responds by killing someone. You can see this situation starts to devolve, and by chapter 6, it's gotten chaotic. It's almost like reading some sort of post-apocalyptic novel or watching that movie where you, where you, see, things, uh, where you see human society as in total breakdown. 
Everybody's just doing whatever they think will get them what they want with no restraint. That's where we come in chapter 6. Verses 9 through 13 begin to summarize God's perspective here. It sets up a contrast, 9 through 13 of chapter 6, I'm sorry. sets up a contrast between Noah and everyone else alive. Verse 9 says, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God and had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Could he have said it any more times than he did? Even the same word, this word for corruption and, and violence is repeated over and over again. And the emphasis is everything has gone bad. And God has reached a turning point. Because of the way things have gone, because it has grieved him mysteriously, even making him to regret what he had done, Earlier in chapter 6, God has decided no more. And so in verse 13, he tells Noah, I've determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. I'm going to destroy them with the earth. He promises that a flood's coming, and he gives Noah some instructions. He's to build an ark. He's to take representative animals from each of the species to preserve them so that afterwards God can make a new beginning. He gives him all the precise specifications, and he sets him out on his way to work. And it doesn't spell out exactly how long he worked, but the impression is that he's working for decades on this thing, building with his own hands and, and those of his sons this massive ship that was too big to fit in any body of water anywhere near. He looks like a fool. That's what God tells him to do. Nothing changes in the meantime. No one wonders what he's doing, asks him, hears this warning of the flood, and decides to change their course. After Noah had done all that the Lord commanded him, God tells him to board up the boat, to get everything on there. And verse 10 of chapter 7 says that after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. Listen to the way that he describes this flood. And remember back to the, to the first chapter of Genesis where he's describing creation and how one of the things that he did to bring order out of chaos was to separate the fountains of the earth, to separate the, the waters above from the waters below, and now that dissolves back into chaos. Look at verse 11 of chapter 7. In the 600 year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth. And the windows of the heavens were open, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. Skipping ahead, the flood continued forty days on the earth. Verse 17, the waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated above the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. Verse 21 introduces the results of this flood. And notice that its results go as far, are as all-encompassing as the evil itself that had brought this flood on. Verse 21 says, All flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, Livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. Everything 
Everything was corrupt. Now everything has died. This is where the story turns. There's a feature of the story that I don't have time to explain in detail today, in part because I don't have a whiteboard and in part because I don't have a couple of hours to do it. But one of the, one of the things that ancient writers in this period loved to do to emphasize their points and to add some poetic beauty to the way that they wrote was they would build their stories in a, in a structure called a chiasm. A chiasm. C-H-I-A-S-M. If you're taking notes, you can Google it later and you can understand a little more about what this is. But what it, what it means is each individual detail in the passage is laid out in a certain order. And then it's reversed step by step in the same order. So that if you were diagramming it, it would look like a triangle and each in, in, a, a mirror image of each other. And one part of the reason is just it's, it's an interesting and poetic way to structure a story. But another crucial component of that, of that design is that the author always used this to make sure you knew that the point at the middle, the point where the chiasm reversed, is the main point of the whole story. And in this text, the whole thing, from, from Genesis chapter 9 to the end of chapter, or from Genesis chapter 6 to the end of chapter 9, is structured with a turning point that is verse 1 of chapter 8. The turning point of the story, the most important point the author is making, is that God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. And from this point on, in the exact reverse order of the coming of the flood and its destructive path, God reverses it and recreates. The waters subside. After they had covered the mountains, now they begin to subside. After they had covered the dry land, now the dry land appears again. After he had told Noah and his family to enter the ark, now he tells them to leave the ark. And after he had promised that he was going to send this flood to destroy all living things, the story concludes with a promise that he will never again do this. It concludes with Noah leaving the ark as a new Adam given the same sorts of commissions that Adam was to be fruitful and multiply and fill up the earth, and then a promise that never again will he destroy the world with a flood. That's a, it's a promise called a covenant, and it's what chapter 9 is about. Read it in detail if you haven't before. That's the big picture here. God bringing cataclysmic judgment that stretches as far as the evil that had corrupted what he'd made, and God acting in grace to save a representative from humankind to restart, to refresh and, and renew his world. Here's where we've got to drill down. With what we've got remaining, what time we've got left, we've got to face this reality of God's judgment head on and do something with it. And, and then we've got to try to understand the pattern of redemption that's shown to us in the way God interacts with Noah. That's where we're headed from here. So God's Hatred for sin first. How, how should the story of terrible and intentional judgment, clearly hatched by God, affect our view of God? Remember, the purpose of this section of Genesis is to explain things that we all experience in the world, some foundational truths that affect everything. It answers questions like where do we come from and why do we matter and what went wrong and what are the consequences. And here, here we see the first example the first look at a pattern for how God feels about sin. We've seen hints at it before. He banished Adam and Eve from the garden, after all, and he promised them that death was going to be the result of their decision to rebel against him. But here we see the first actual full-on response of God 
to sin and corruption. And it is horrifying. I fear that we've so domesticated this story that we focus mostly on the boat full of animals and on rainbows in the sky. It becomes almost a nursery rhyme, you know, and it, it ends up embroidered on children's clothing and it ends up in, you know, in, in, in stories and, and, and illustrated books and toys. Dave Hunt and I were talking about this week, that, that this week, about how when we think of Noah, the story of the flood, what we think of are these happy images of a, a smiling man and all these smiling animals peering out through the windows of the ark. But what we've got, if you really face up to it, what we've got is no different than the images of floods that we now have in our minds. We can't think abstractly about a flood after seeing Katrina or seeing Nashville's flood last year. Those images should be in our minds when we read this story and multiplied by a thousand. This is systematic genocide. It's the destruction of the entire race, save Noah's family. The sheer horror and suffering experienced by everything that had breath is really something, if we think about these as real people who saw this going down and had nothing they could do to resist it, it it's unimaginable what this would have been like. This part of the story is here because it explains a crucial and ongoing component of how God relates to the world through the rest of Scripture and history. It shows us that he hates sin and he must punish it. So how are we going to come to grips with that? How do we come to grips with that reality? I think first we've got to start by trying to understand why God would take such a drastic action in response to sin. And if we're going to understand that action, we have to understand, I think, hatred as a byproduct of love. Clearly, God is here acting in hatred for the sin that has corrupted his entire creation. God's acting in hatred, but I think we should see that as a byproduct of his love. Part of love is wanting what's best for the object that you love. And that means not wanting anything that challenges what's best for what you love. Love is defined in part by wanting the good of the thing that you love. And that also means hating anything that challenges the interests of the things that you love. It threatens them. Now, this is a trivial example, uh, especially given the weight of what we're talking about. But I couldn't think of anything better. So here goes. The more you love something, the more you come to hate anything that threatens what you love. That's the point we're making. So most of you know that I love Auburn Tigers football. As a consequence, I hate, I loathe Alabama Crimson Tide football. I don't hate Vanderbilt, right? Because the threat there just isn't that significant. <laughs> yes, we took one on the, on the nose a couple years back on one of the darkest of nights in recent memory. But Vandy in general is just not a threat to what I love. And so my hatred for them isn't there. But I hate LSU. And I hate Florida. And I especially hate Alabama. Because I know that in they represent, they codify and embody everything that threatens what I love most. So some people will tell me, who live in Alabama, oh, you know, I, I, I do, I am an Auburn fan, but I pull for Alabama any other time they're not playing Auburn. And I look at them and I tell them, you know what? You just aren't an Auburn fan. You don't love Auburn. Otherwise, you would have a corresponding hatred 
for everything that threatens its interests. You would not be able to look on as a neutral observer. Now, I know it's trivial. I know that that in some ways isn't, uh, can't get us where we need to go. But I think it illustrates the, the, the fact that deep and pure love must be matched by a deep and pure hatred for anything that challenges the interests of the thing that's loved. And the more pure and the deeper the love, the more pure and intense the hatred. So to return to this story and the idea that God has to judge sin, we need to remember first what sin boils down to. When we looked at this a couple weeks back, um, when we looked at Genesis chapter 3 and the story of the first sin, if, if, if you weren't able to be with us that day, the, that audio is available on the website. Sin boils down to a replacement of God as the supreme being in our universe, as the one from whom we get all existence and to whom is, is uh, deserved all glory. As the highest being, the one from whom everything comes and to whom everything goes, God must be recognized as God and worshipped and honored and enjoyed as such. That's why the Ten Commandments, that sort of classic description or summary of what God's people were to do in relationship with him, that's why it begins with a commandment not to put any other God before him. That's why all the other little thing, other, other specific types of sin that are described in, that, in those Ten Commandments are really just outworkings of failing that first commandment to love him most above all. And if God is holy, and if holiness is defined by our love for God in the way that we should love God, to put no other thing in his place, then holiness for God is first and foremost his value for himself that is perfect and without blemish. If God is to be holy, as we are told by Scripture repeatedly that he is, if he is defined by this holiness, he is defined by putting nothing above himself. And because his love is so pure, because he is perfectly loving, And because the highest object of his love is himself, then he hates perfectly all replacements of himself for any other good. Those goods could be any number of things. We've seen several different examples already in Genesis. We've seen Eve and Adam replace God as the primary primary being in their worlds for a desire to be like him, for a desire for wisdom, for, for fruit that looked good to the taste, for the senses. We've seen, uh, we've seen Cain replace a, a, a Godward focus for his life with a desire for reputation and jealousy that drove him to kill his brother. And we've seen in Genesis, the beginning of chapter 6, this intense sexual desire drive this perversion, perverted practice mysterious to us that we aren't even getting into today, but that ultimately show God how extensive corruption was. We've seen all of these different things that continue to work actively and consistently in our experience to replace God. We are into power. We're into sex. We're into the sense and pleasures and wisdom and reputation. All the same things are still in, in, in our minds and hearts as a replacement for God today. And when God sees that, he is bound by his holiness to hate it. So maybe... God's action here is theoretically understandable. That as a perfect and holy God, he must love himself perfectly, and therefore he must hate all things that compete with him. But it's no less difficult to swallow. And I admit that when I was trying to get ready to preach this this morning, I've been trying to come up with some creative way to make this more tenable. 
to our ears to sort of soften it and make it seem understandable and, 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 and to come at some, some sort of creative way of looking at it that maybe would change how hard it is to encounter a God who acts in this way. And ultimately, I couldn't do it. The text has to stand on its own, and it would be an injustice to try to make it something less than what it is. It is what it is, and it's abhorrent to us that God would judge in this way. And the reason is that we can't imagine any reality in which we're not the standard of what's valuable. The reason, when we respond with, with uh, protest and anger and offense at the idea of God judging the world in this way, what we're showing is that we can't believe and are offended that God does not value our lives in the same way that we do. That ultimately what we love most and therefore what offends us when it's not true is a supreme value for ourselves. If you're encountering this text, this horrifying description of judgment, and it is pushing you away from the God of the Bible, I can understand why that might be true. But I would warn you to be critical of your own mind and heart. To recognize that probably what's happening is not any sort of reasoned argument for why there couldn't be a God like this who would judge in this way, but an emotional response because to the fact that this God doesn't share your values. You've got to be honest about what you're saying. The risks here could not be any higher. Can you really trust your instincts with your life? Ultimately, some part of Christian teaching has been abhorrent to every culture that has ever encountered it since, since it entered the world scene. And as a, as a body of teaching that claims to be over every culture and transcend it all and, and not be bound by any time or place, you can only expect that every individual culture with all its uniquenesses would run up against it at some point. And for us, this is it. But the risks here are great because... Ultimately, this is explaining to us, this passage is explaining to us a God who continues to act today in the same way and with, by the same values that drove his action then. And there is still in effect today reigning supremely over all the world a God who hates sin and who has promised he will judge it. That's half of the Noah story. But there's more to it. Thank God there's, there's more to it. We see a pattern for how God relates to sin and responds to it. But we also see here a pattern of God's redemption. God ultimately did choose to preserve Noah and his family. So what we've got to ask of the text today is why. Why did he preserve Noah? And why should we expect that he will preserve us from judgment? And I want to make a few, uh, a few observations about this. God, first, a recap of this phase of the story. God, God carefully preserved Noah and his family. He makes a fresh start with them in this world. And he binds himself to them with a new set of covenant promises. So here, the remarkable thing is that we've got a God who has the right to judge. He stands so far above what he's made that he is right to come down, even with this cataclysmic judgment. So a God who's that far above us, who's that distant from us, as this story would indicate, what would drive a God like that to bind himself to promises made to those same creatures, to creatures that far below him? Why? The answer that's found in this text and the others that comment, explains, comment on it explains a great deal about God's 
pattern of redemption, a pattern that extends up to today and, and is seen most vividly in Jesus. So let me, let me make three observations about the details of the story that help answer these kinds of questions and help illuminate how God's grace continues to act in redemption today. Three observations. First, God redeems those who, like Noah, have faith in him. God redeems those who, like Noah, have faith in him. Now, at first glance, we might come to believe that God preserves Noah because Noah was a good man. Noah was obedient when everyone else wasn't obedient. And that's why God saved him. And on the surface of the text, you could come away and easily respond to it in that way. And and honestly, that's probably how it's been explained to me, and maybe to many of you, more often than not. as almost like a, a story in the book of virtues or something like that, a moral tale about the dangers of disobedience and the the rewards of obedience. But if that's what's happening, if God is first and foremost preserving Noah because of Noah's goodness, that Noah was not corrupt in the way that others were, then personally, I don't find it encouraging at all. Because when I'm honest with myself and look at my own heart, what I see is much more in me of the rest of the world and the corruption and the violence that's described there than the goodness that's ascribed here to Noah. If God only saved Noah because Noah was perfect in his obedience, then it could be terrifying to us because we belong with the sinners. Terrifying because the same God who sent that flood feels the same way about sin today as he did then. And if I'm sinful, I face a similar judgment. That's what we're confronted with if Noah is a model for perfect obedience. But that's not what it means for Noah to be righteous. We aren't told much about what his righteousness before this looked like. But we, I think we do get some insight into what it was like from the way that he responds to this situation, in this story, the details of his response to God. God, throughout this story, is the primary actor here. It's never first and foremost about Noah at all. God is the one who looks at the earth, who, who, who sees its corruption and decides to destroy it. God is the one who tells Noah to build an ark and to take his family and animals onto the ark. He's the one who decides when the rain starts, when the rain stops, and when all the water passes away. And he is the one who binds himself to Noah with new promises at the end. The only thing that Noah does is what God commanded. Every now and then we're told that Noah did as God commanded him. Verse 22 of chapter 6 is an example. Verse 5 of chapter 7, Noah does what God commands. Now, think about what it was that was commanded from Noah's perspective. What, what is this goodness, this obedience that Noah was worthy of? Think of how foolish Noah would have looked over decades building a ship that could hold his whole family and representatives of we don't know how many species of animals for that amount of time, along with the supplies that it would take to feed them for that amount of time. Think about how foolish he would have looked building that in the middle of land and no water anywhere close that could accommodate this kind of ship. Think about how mind-bogglingly foolish it would have looked to have done this for decades without seeing God act at all on the things he said was going to come. It's it's mind-boggling. I know we can't really imagine it fully, but do your best and think about what that says about his obedience. There has to have been something behind his obedience. Noah wouldn't do these random things. It's not like he's obeying the Ten Commandments, these 
these standards of holiness that stand in place over us for all time. No, he's doing some very specific and seemingly random things that don't have anything to do with holiness on their own, but just because God has commanded them. And he's doing this in spite of how foolish they would have looked. So what that says to me is that there was something behind his obedience, something true of him before he obeyed these specific commands. What it says is that he had to first believe God. He had to first believe that what God said was true, that God was worth trusting, that he really did have Noah's interests at heart and wasn't just playing some sort of cruel game with him. He had to have faith first, first. And the actions, his obedience, flows from the faith that he had that God was for him and not against him. He lived a life, first and foremost, of dependence on God. He honored God by resting everything on him. And nothing could have shown him his dependence on God more than the flood itself, where he's surrounded by water as far as the eye can see. And if God should not intervene to save him, he would surely die. But he, he believed the word that God had promised to him. And he lived. What we see from Noah is not simply obedience, but radical faith. And that's why the author of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, said this of Noah. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. This is a story that turns on God remembering Noah. And when God remembered Noah, what he in part remembered was that Noah believed in him. Noah had faith. God redeems those who, like Noah, have faith in him. Second, God redeems those to whom he's bound himself by his word. What God also remembered when he remembered Noah and brought his judgment to a stop was his promise, his word to Noah. The tension in the narrative that builds to God's promise and his remembering Noah when he's just wiped the earth clean of all other living beings. The tension runs back to the beginning where God had responded to Adam and Eve with a promise that one day the curse, the, 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 the curse that had affected all of human history since would be lifted. That one day the seed of the woman, he tells Eve, would crush the head of the serpent or all evil. That's a promise God had made at the beginning of the story right after everything had gone wrong. And everything that's happened since then has been tension building to see whether or not God could make good on that promise. Look at what had happened. Look at how everything had become evil, how, 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 awful, how awful it had become so that over and over again in description of it, the word corruption is used again and again and again. Is God going to be able to bring good out of this? That's the question hanging in the air as everything that has breath dies. When God remembers Noah, he remembers that he had promised that the seed of the woman would have the last laugh, that the evil represented in the serpent would be crushed forever. But he's also remembering his promise to Noah. In chapter 6, right when he's telling Noah about the flood and the the fact that he's got to build this ark and get on it and and save his family and these animals, he's also telling him that I'm going to save you and your family. And then I'm going to make a covenant with you that is going to stand forever. He's promised himself to Noah to preserve him. Then in chapter 9, he builds on that. He establishes an eternal covenant of peace 
whereby he will never destroy the world again by flood. He hangs his bow in the sky as a sign to remember that he will never again do this. He hangs a weapon, his weapon, attached to to rain clouds that he had used to destroy all things that had been corrupt before him. Now he hangs it up because he's never doing that again. God has bound himself by his word to Noah, and that's what drives his decision to intervene and to save him. And that sets a pattern for us that runs all through the Old Testament and beyond. God's pattern of redemption is a pattern of faithfulness to the promises that he's made. Here we have a God that's so apart from his creation that he made it with a word and he commands it at will. A God who has such an absolute right to judge that he, that he does so by commanding exactly when the rain starts and exactly when the rain stops. This is the same God that's binding himself to undeserving creatures at will. Notice that he binds himself unilaterally. He doesn't say, Noah, now you do this. If you fulfill these things, then I promise I'll never again destroy the world by flood. He comes to Noah as a royal person, condescending himself to those who have no claim on him and promising that he will never do this again. It's what Old Testament scholars, scholars of ancient literature from this time call a royal grant covenant. It's one from a greater to a lesser with no precondition. And unbelievably, most remarkably to me, he binds himself in this way unilaterally in spite of the fact that he knows that his creatures are going to continue sinning. In chapter 8, verse 21, he's preparing, he's he's, he's dialoguing with Noah, building up to this this great set of covenant promises that he's going to make. And in verse 21... After he's received Noah's sacrifice, he says, I will never again curse the ground because of man. And look at the reason. The reason he's making this promise. For, comes next. Here's the reason I'm making that promise. For, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I've done. Two promises, two repetitions of the same promise, never again to do this. And in the middle of them, giving the reason that he's giving these promises is the fact that we are completely made up of evil. And that is the intention of our heart from our youth. Do you see the power of what God is doing here? He promises grace because he knows that we will fail him. It's a king promising to love and to protect his subjects even though he knows they're going to rebel against him. And that's exactly what happens again and again all through the Old Testament as he continues building on this covenant with a covenant through Abraham and one through Moses and one through David. And as Israel continues to resist him and to rebel against him again and again, faced with the necessity of judging Israel for their sin, God reminds himself that he has made a covenant with their fathers. And it is that covenant which holds true and keeps him from completely demolishing them for what they've done. A great example of this is in Isaiah chapter 54. Much of Isaiah has been about promising that Israel, for their rebellion, was going to get taken into exile. They were going to have the very things that had been promised to them in the covenant taken away for a time as a means of judgment. They were going to lose the land that had been promised them. But God says, I won't have the last word. Remembering his promise that he'd made, he specifically, through Isaiah, cites the Noah story. In Isaiah chapter 54, this is what God says. Speaking of Israel, when they would be in exile, this is like the days of Noah to me. 
as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. In the midst of Israel's sin, even in the midst of a cleansing judgment for sin, Just like with Noah, surrounded by the waters of judgment, God holds true to his word. So, friends, how much more sweet is our assurance? Because this pattern of redemption, where God honors faith and binds himself to those who trust in him, in spite of their failures, that's a pattern that's ultimately fulfilled in Christ, who gives his own blood to form a new covenant that will stand forever. And no pledge of his sincerity and his trustworthiness could ever match the fact that he would give his own son as the bond that makes it stick. Could our life circumstances, as challenging as they often are to our faith, ever come anywhere close to what Noah experienced? Can you imagine what it would be like to hold faith through that storm? And if he's given his son, is he going to hold back anything from us? No. Jesus promised No one and nothing could snatch us out from our Father's hand. And God is true to his word, a word of grace and peace and love. And just as he remembered Noah, so he will remember those of us who rest in Jesus. Will you pray with me?